How's everybody doing? So this mustache, right? So let's go ahead and talk about it. So um, we had this 80s party <laughs> at our house for all the staff. Every year, you know, I invite all the people who work here over to our home, and, and uh, we don't have a very big home, so we cram everyone in there, and, and uh, we did an 80s thing. And uh, so I did the mustache, and I just said, you know, what the heck, I'll, I'll keep it for a while. But uh, when I say a while, I'm probably going to shave it right when I leave the 12 o'clock service, but, uh, or the 11 o'clock service. But um, the day I did it, I think it was Friday morning I had done this, and I wanted a cup of coffee. And so I go to Starbucks on Memorial, and I, I've gotten to know, like, everyone that works there. And most people that work there are kind of these uh, young women in their 20s and mostly college students, and they're working and. I know most of them by name, and I'm always in there, you know, at the same times of the day and stuff. And so I go in there, and I walk in, and none of them will make eye contact with me. They're all, like, doing their stuff, and they're like, hey, Corey, and they just, like, won't look at me. And I'm like, and so I keep trying to, like, get in their vision. Like, I'm like, hey, hey, I'm over here, you know. And I go up there, and I order my drink, and um, the girl taking my order, she's like, hey, what can we do for you today, Corey? And she's looking down, and I'm like, same thing I get every day, you know, and I order my thing, and there's this other girl, Mary, she's a really sweet girl, and she's making someone else's drink, and she finally just asks, she goes, what's up with your mustache? <laughs> I said, I don't know, Mary, what's up with it? Do you like it or not, right? You know, like put her on the spot, and so my wife finds it very, very funny, so, um, but uh, anyways, you guys doing okay? Everyone doing okay? I'm just happy I can speak today, so uh, that makes me happy that I can actually talk and that you can hear me, so yeah. So we have been in the book of Revelation for some time, and we're in a very, very interesting part of it. I say that every week, because I think that's because I think the whole thing is pretty interesting. But this middle section that we're in is kind of a transition, and I'll get to that here in a second. If you haven't been here, let me, let me kind of catch you up a little bit. There's a lot that I can't catch you up on because of time, but I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can paint a picture a little bit. There's three different major series of events that take place in the book of Revelation. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, okay? We've been through in chapters eight and nine, six of the trumpets. We see that the seals, the first set of events, were bad. The trumpets are intensified so much so that the fifth and sixth trumpet, it says one-third of humanity will be killed via this army, this 200-million-person army, we talked a little bit about that, but very, very serious. And what was fascinating is it says that people still will not repent during that time when a third of mankind gets killed. In chapter 10, if you were here for this, very, very interesting chapter, very different. John is now on earth. He's not kind of up here looking down. He's on the earth. An angel comes down, puts a foot on the land, a foot on the sea, and offers John a scroll, a small scroll. We talked about that the scroll represents John's responsibility, his accepting his call, his accepting his role as a prophet to communicate what God wants him to, to communicate. We talked about that we all have a scroll. We all have a responsibility and that it's a bittersweet responsibility. Being a Christian, it's sweet because we have a relationship with God. We have a community around us. There's a lot of good things. It's also bitter because being a Christian sometimes is difficult. It's very, very hard when we do the right thing, okay? If you were here last week, this is where the book of Revelation takes a turn. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, we have this, the, these two witnesses that show up 
probably more than likely two literal men that show up. They preach the gospel. The whole entire world hears it for three and a half years. And then at the end of this three and a half years, it says that a beast rises up. It's the Antichrist, a political leader, has these two men killed in the streets. But after three and a half days, these men rise. And then we talked about in the last half of chapter 14, I'm sorry, chapter 11, what am I talking about? Verses 15 through 19, should be taken out of chapter 11, it's chronologically out of order, and should be placed later on. Now listen, I didn't say this last week, but I should have. When you read the book of Revelation, some people get really upset when I say, well, are you saying something's chronologically out of order? Well, yeah, in fact, the whole Bible is almost chronologically out of order in a lot of different ways. But if you take those chapters, that, that, uh, those verses out of chapter 11, you have to remember that when John was recording the book of Revelation, he was frantically writing down all these visions and things that he was seeing, a lot of things that didn't make sense to him and a lot of things he had never seen before. And so John was writing very, very quickly and sometimes got some things out of order and that's okay. With a little bit of study, with a little bit of research, with a little bit of work, we can put the pieces together and, it, and, and it's fine, okay? So where we're at this week, if you remember last week, I said that chapters 12 through 18 is repeating the, the, the seven years of the great tribulation, but not from an, uh, a heavenly vantage point, it's from an earthly vantage point. Now chapter 12 is unique because we're not really gonna get into a whole lot of the future in chapter 12. It's kind of a blend of the past to the present, things in the future, things that are literal, things that are metaphorical. And chapter 12 is basically an epic play. John is going to see this drama about good and evil kind of unfold in front of him. And there's a lot of symbolism, a lot of stuff that we have to dig into, but it's a really, really fascinating chapter, okay? So you should have everything written down in your notes that we handed out when you walked in. If you have the app, the Experience Community app, click on service times and sermon notes. Everything should be on there, even the scripture, very, very handy. Uh, everything should be on the screens. It's not a very long chapter, so we'll get through it relatively quick, but it's a very, very interesting chapter, very graphic, very, uh, there's a lot to, to really use your imagination with in this chapter, okay? And we'll do our best to break it down, all right? So let me pray and we'll get into this, okay? Lord Jesus, God, we just wanna tell you thank you. Lord, thank you, God, that we could come in here today, God, and, and, and listen to your word and think about your word and meditate on your word. God, I pray, Lord, that we don't just hear the word today. I pray that we do the word, that we apply the word, that it grows us and strengthens us. God, we pray for every church in our city. Pray for all the great nonprofits in our city. We specifically pray for Salvation Army, God, and everything that they do in our town, God, and pray that they're blessed. Lord, I also wanna pray for everyone in this room who's feeling sick, all the people who have the junk in their chest and in their nose and sinuses and colds. God, we just pray, Lord, that they heal up quick and they can enjoy their Christmas time with their family and friends, God, and, and not be distracted by sickness. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's get into chapter 12. I think you guys will like this. Okay, here we go. John says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. 
there was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns, and on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male who is going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1260 days. So like I said, chapter 12 is like this complicated mashup. Throw literal things, throw metaphorical things, throw the past, the present, the future, throw it all in a blender, blend it all together, and you have chapter 12. So it gets a little tough. This chapter is not to be taken as systematic theology, which means whenever we read the Bible, this is important not just for chapter 12, but reading the entire Bible, you cannot get all of your theology from one passage or one chapter. There's a reason why we have this entire book. It's because we're to study this entire book and we get our theology about God, not just from one little snippet, because you can take it out of context. So you have to read the entire thing and study the entire thing. So what John is saying in chapter 12 is, like I said, like a play, a drama, this vision of this epic battle of good versus evil, God versus Satan. Now, the first half of this drama takes place in the heavens. The drama begins in the heavens, but it's going to move to earth. And for the, for, for the next couple of months, we'll be studying the vantage point that John has from earth of the great tribulation, Okay. So in this play, though, the first character that we meet is a woman. And it says that this woman is clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet and a crown, a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, there's a lot of different interpretations for this. Most Catholics believe this is Mary and the 12 disciples. Most Messianic Jews believe this is talking about Israel and then the 12 tribes of Israel. Most Protestants, that's, that's us, right? Most Protestants believe that this is the church, the woman, and that the stars represent Christians, followers of Christ. There are some people, not a lot, who believe that this is not a literal tale at all. It's not a, a, a literal thing that's going to happen or happen in a specific time, but it's an analogy. It's a metaphor. It's cyclical. Every generation has this heroine, this, this hero character that, that comes up and she's persecuted by evil, but she overcomes evil and it happens over and over and over again. If you guys remember, we talked about cyclical time, how some people view Revelation in a cyclical time, okay? More than likely though, it's, it's probably talking about the church, this woman. So it said this woman was pregnant and about to give birth. Now, the third character that we'll talk about here in a second is very, very obvious. Her son is the third character. The second character 
is also very, very obvious. This is the antagonist to the drama. It says the great fiery red dragon. You don't have to be a genius to realize who this is, right? It's talking about Satan. Now, what's interesting about world cultures and world religions is almost every world culture and almost every major religion has some kind of folklore or lore about a dragon, some kind of eagle, evil dragon. Now, Christianity has its version of that as well, but we name who the dragon is. The dragon is the devil. It is Satan, okay? Now, it says this fiery red dragon, which we know is the devil, has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. Now, listen, don't get lost in this stuff. I'm going to say a bunch of tens and sevens, but don't get lost in this. It says the dragon had seven heads. That probably symbolizes that, the, that, that Satan is smart. He has complete wisdom. Seven typically shows completion, fullness, Okay. So the devil is smart. On the seven heads, it said there were seven crowns. Some of your translations, if you don't use my translation, may say diadem, not crown. The reason why is there is a difference between a crown and a diadem. A diadem is like a crown, but it doesn't symbolize victory. It shows understanding. So it shows that the devil is smart, he's crafty, he understands what he's doing, And then 10 horns, horns always represent power in the book of Revelation. So not only did he have complete power, I know that sounds a little misleading, we're talking about the devil, but he had extreme power. He had more than seven, he had 10 horns. So very, very powerful. Now, so these things kind of symbolize some things that are, that are, that are, that are, again, they're symbolic, right? They can also mean things that are maybe a little bit more concrete, now, if you were here years ago when I taught the book of Daniel, which is an absolutely fascinating book of the Bible, in the book of Daniel, Daniel interprets a dream that a king has. And in this dream, there's actually several dreams he interprets, but in this dream, he sees a figure made up of all these different metals. And what it, the metals represent on this figure is it represents different empires. When it talks about this devil... Uh, or it talks about this dragon having seven heads. Some people think this is referring to evil empires that have existed all throughout human history. And in the book of Daniel, Daniel basically says that God told him there will be seven major empires that will exist and fall before, the de- uh, before uh, Jesus comes back. Now, if you go back into human history, Daniel was pretty right on with this. There's been the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, that was Daniel's time, the Greeks, the Romans, that was John's time. And so six of the seven empires that Daniel talked about and John talks about have come and gone. That means that there's only one evil empire left before Jesus will come back. Some people call that a revived Rome. Some people call that a divided Rome because on the statue there was clay and iron that were blended together. It was divided. So some people believe that's what this means. The seven heads represents empires. Most scholars also believe that the 10 horns represent political institutions and they will all unite under one leader, a political leader that we we will call the Antichrist, The seven crowns are more than likely leaders of these governments, these countries, these political institutions. Three of them will unite under one nation, 
and that makes seven crowns, okay? Again, don't get lost in that. We'll talk about that more later, okay? It also says, this dragon swept away a third of the stars. If you've been with us for Revelation, stars represent angels. So what this is, is this is the past. When I say past, real far back, pre-Genesis past. When Satan was cast out of heaven, and he took a third of the angels with him, and they became demons, right? So verse four shows us just how evil the devil is. Look at this, this imagery that we get. It says that the devil stands in front of this pregnant woman, and again, this sounds very graphic, but imagine a woman who's about to give birth, and there's this evil dragon waiting there, so when the baby comes out of this mother's womb, he wants to devour, he wants to tear apart this child. This brings this up. We often talk about the devil. We either give the devil, devil way too much credit or not enough credit. We tend to go one way or the other. We don't think in a very biblical manner like the devil. We just kind of casually say things. Ah, oh, the devil made me do it. Had a bad day at work. The copier broke. Man, the devil got me. Listen, I'm going to be a jerk here for a second. There's 8 billion people on planet Earth. 8 billion, roughly. Now, the devil is not omnipresent, which means he cannot be all places at all time. So whenever we say, man, the devil just broke the copier at work. Okay, so the devil focuses on 8 billion people, picks out you, and all he wants to do is ruin your copier at work. It's <laughs> a very arrogant thing to say, isn't it, right? So here's the thing we need to know about the devil. We need to be very careful about how we speak about the devil. Here's how the Bible describes Satan. Listen, Satan doesn't want to just ruin your day at the office. Satan wants to rip you to shreds. Peter says the devil walks around like a roaring lion looking to devour the people of God. So look at what he says. He says, be sober, be vigilant, be serious. Talking about the devil is not a joking matter. Whenever we think it's cute or something like that to dress up like the devil or play like the devil, there's nothing cute about the devil. There's nothing fluffy about that. There's nothing lighthearted about that. He is evil and he wants to tear you apart. And that's what Peter says. So the second character is obvious, Satan. The third character is also obvious. The biggest context clue is there says she had a son, but it's a capital S which refers to God, right? It's Jesus. So it says that her son will lead the nations with an iron rod. It also says that her son was caught up to God. Now, some people struggle with this because it almost looks like that Jesus was afraid of the devil, and that's not the case. As we continue to read on in the chapter, we're gonna see that God is not afraid of the devil, that he is completely sovereign, he's completely in control, and that he wins, okay? So we learn that later on. Now it says this woman fled to the wilderness. The reason why a lot of people believe that, that the, the church, this woman, I'm sorry, that the woman is referring to Mary is because in the Bible we know that Mary fled to Egypt right after Jesus was born in fear for her son's life. But most scholars still believe this is not talking about Mary, this is talking about the church and that the church will flee during the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation because of intense persecution, that they will have to retreat somewhere. Now, some people believe this isn't a literal wilderness, like Christians aren't going to be living up in the mountains and in the hills. They believe it will be more of a social wilderness. 
Now, guys, if you do much traveling, if you get to go around to many big cities, you kind of already see this happening. Christianity is not widely accepted in most major metropolitan areas. If you go to New York or if you go to DC or if you go to Los Angeles or if you go especially in places in Europe, you see that churches are not really extremely popular. Christianity is not a cool thing to be a part of. So we're already starting to see that Christianity is becoming socially unacceptable, at least Christianity by biblical standards. Following into biblical, uh, uh, living in biblical standards is not a popular thing to do anymore. Okay, next part. It says, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. Now here's a break. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him, that's the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. So the action of the play kind of intensifies, right? Just like any good movie would. The action, right? The drama intensifies. But in this, por this portion that I just read, we get the past, we get the present, we get the future, all kind of blended together. Not only that, we see spiritual warfare. There's something in Ephesians chapter six, we quote this scripture a lot as Christians, but we don't really think about it a lot, right? We say that we fight not against flesh and blood, but we fight against principalities and spiritual darkness. And we say that a lot in church, but we don't really think about it very much, but we actually get to kind of see it be played out in this passage. And though Satan had taken a third of heaven with him, Michael, the archangel, overthrows the devil and throws him out of heaven, casts him out of heaven. Now, what's interesting is this, though. We are told that Satan is now on earth. There's a hell as well. But what we learn here is Satan is not confined to hell. Now, we often think of the devil like hanging out in hell, doing whatever the Devil does in hell, like playing backgammon for eternity. That'd be my hell, right? So like down here doing something really boring forever. But the devil and his demons are not confined to hell. They are focused on destroying you. So look at what it says here. I, I, I love this. this there, there's so much important theology in this one statement. John says the ancient serpent, which is called Satan and the devil, or the devil and Satan. Now the word devil literally translates to slanderer. The word Satan literally translates to accuser. Get this. We can no more act like Satan than when we are talking bad about other people and accusing them of things that they didn't do. 
We live in a culture to where that's all we know how to do. Everyone is always wrong except for me, right? We're always pointing fingers. We're always passing blame. We're always gossiping. We're always backbiting. We're always tearing each other down. And by definition, when you do that, you are being the devil and Satan. Look at that. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, that no slanderers or gossipers will go to heaven. Corey, how dare you? Look it up. Chapter 6, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians. No gossipers or slanderers. It also says in James that the only thing that can tame the tongue is the Holy Spirit. So we need to make sure as Christians that we are extremely careful how we talk about other people. Extremely careful how we talk about other people. So in the middle of all this, there's an intermission to this play. And it's kind of a spoiler, right? It kind of like ruins it a little bit. I remember when The Sixth Sense came out. Do you guys remember when that came out? It was like 1998. It was 20 years ago. I was on my way to the theater to see The Sixth Sense, and I won't tell you the ending if you haven't seen it. But on the way to the theater, the guy in the front seat had already seen it. He goes, man, what's crazy is this. And he told me the ending. I'm like, I'm going to punch this dude in the back of the head, right? Like, I was so mad. It's got like the most epic ending of any movie ever, and it was ruined for me. So in the middle of John watching this epic drama of good and evil, there's this interruption that basically says, oh yeah, by the way, Jesus wins, you win, everything's good, right? And so this voice from heaven speaks up and says the ultimate victor, the winner, is gonna be Jesus. Jesus has all the authority. Humanity will be saved if they call on his name. So you kind of get this spoiler alert, but that's okay. As John is watching this epic drama, this voice from heaven assures him, it's gonna be all right. You're gonna win. We as Christians need to hear that sometimes. When you look at the world, it looks like the world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? Does anyone else read the news beside me? Okay, it looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket. And every once in a while, we need to go back to the word or we need to be reminded by God, it's gonna be okay. God is still in control. You're gonna win, God wins, everything's good, okay? So we get this. We also learn not just that God is victorious, we learn how we are victorious. Verse 11 is probably the most popular scripture, except for maybe chapter four in Revelation, and it's one of the most important passages in the New Testament. It says that we are told, we are told how we overcome the forces of hell, and we overcome it by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. So the angels defeated Satan in heaven we defeat Satan every single day by depending on the cross, by remembering what the cross has done for us, and by sharing the story of what God has done for us with other people. How do we defeat the devil? By depending on the cross, remembering the blood of Christ, and sharing our testimonies. And we defeat hell every single day using those weapons. Verse 11 says, though, that they're also, they, we also have to be willing to lose it all. It says that the people that conquered the devil didn't love their lives to the point of death. This means that true Christians are willing to give up all the things that this world finds important. Jesus said it this way. If you want to find your life, you first have to learn to lose your life. You have to be willing to give it all up in order to understand what it fully means to live. Matthew 10, 39. The mature Christian knows that the things of this world will go away, that they're not permanent. Our relationship with God, though, transcends time 
and it's for eternity. So verse 12, John kind of takes the reins again, and John warns the people on earth and the sea that the devil has now come down to earth with great fury and that his time is short. What we're going to learn is that Satan is going to come with great fury via two individuals, a political leader and a religious leader. This is going to be the Antichrist, okay? These two false prophets. And there's going to be extreme persecution against people. But we also know that his time is short. It's not going to last for a long time, okay? All right, last part. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who had, been given birth, who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time, times, and half of a time. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. So the woman is reintroduced into the story. And the dragon turns his attention back to the woman. I think it's pretty clear here that this is symbolic of the church. And it's symbolic of Satan's attack on the church, both on the people and the institution of the church. Now, this is an orange. You guys are going to hate the color orange after this because this means that I'm really going to get on a soapbox for a second. I am about fed up to hear about stash level, right? Fed up. <laughs> with Christians who continually say, I love Jesus and hate the church. I'm fed up with that. You don't want to know why? Because it's not a biblical thing to say. And if it's not a biblical thing to say, it's not a Jesus thing to say. So all throughout this Bible, from the book of Exodus, all the way to the very end to the book of Revelation, over and over and over again, the idea in some form or fashion, even when they were traveling through the desert, they built a church, they called it a tabernacle, where everyone would worship corporately together once a week. From the very beginning of this Bible to the very end, the idea of a corporate, organized church has been taught by God all throughout human history. So whenever someone says... I love Jesus and hate the church. That is the equivalent because the church is called the bride of Christ. That's the equivalent of you walking up to me after service and saying, Corey, I love you. I hate Alicia. That's my wife. Now listen, I know it's not the Christian thing to do, but I will probably knock you unconscious, right? <laughs> That's probably not the thing to do. I know it's not the thing to do. I'll help pay for your medical bills and I'll repent and everything else. But if you walk up to me and, and say things awful about my spouse, I'm offended by that because that's my wife. So when we say, I love Jesus and hate the church, you're saying, I love you, Jesus. I hate your bride. I hate your wife. And I'll just let you guys know this. God doesn't like that. But Corey, the church is broken. Listen, let, I'm just going to clue you into a thing on life. Whatever you do with people will never be perfect. That's because we're, that's why Jesus died on a cross. 
because we're not perfect. And he knows we're not perfect, but he loves us regardless. And you are to, look at me, I'm like out here on the ledge. Even you guys are to love people regardless of their imperfection. We are called to be the church, right? That's what we are called to do. And so I'm so fed up of this really poor theology that says that we can love Christ and not be a part of a church body. If you can show me that in this book, well, we're any two are gathered in my name. That is not talking about church at all. That is talking about when you pray with other people and get together in Christian community. From the front of this book to the back of it, it emphasizes church. And I love when people say, well, I'm against organized religion. Really? What do you have against organization? Do you want to go to a restaurant that's disorganized? Here's your spaghetti, but I ordered a burger. Well, we're just unorganized. You know what I mean? Like, is that what you want? I love organization. Let me break it to you here. God also loves organization. That's why the Bible says God is a God of order. God does things in order. He's systematic. He's intentional. Man, that organized church. Would you just rather go to a place that's just a mess? All right, let me move on. Sorry. Sorry. That, that, was, that was my little spiel on church. You're already here, though, so I'm just like preaching to the choir, right? So it says this woman that was being persecuted was given two wings. Obviously a metaphor, right? The two wings represent swift and powerful protection from God to the people of God during the Great Tribulation. And it says it happens during a time, times, and then half of a time, that's a half. That equals three and a half years. So we see again that the last three and a half years of that seven years is going to be really, really bad. It's going to be very, very rough. Now look at this imagery that John uses for the devil's, his fury against mankind. It says he's going to be like a serpent that spews water that is trying to drown this woman. What is interesting is verse six, uh, 16 says that the earth will swallow this up. I've studied this like crazy. Most scholars believe that there will be some kind of natural phenomenon that will somehow help Christians. I don't know what that means. No one really knows what it means. But something with the earth, this is why we take care of the earth, right? Recycled, right? Because one day it may save your life. So the word to take care of the earth. And so it says somehow the earth is going to take care of us. And then it says that the devil will wage war against the offspring. Many believe what this means is that Satan will move from persecuting the church, the big church, to attacking individual Christians. Now, maybe that's prominent leaders. Maybe that's pastors being killed in the street. Maybe that's uh, authors being ridiculed, or maybe that's them even having moral failure and giving over to things that are not biblical. See, Matthew 16 says the forces of hell will never overpower the church. So Satan knows that he will never be able to destroy the church. But since he knows this, he's going to have a desperate attempt to kill Christians. The devil is going to think that if he just kills all the Christians, that the faith will die off as well. And that's not true. Think of the beaches of Libya. Do you guys remember in 2016? Radical Islam lined up a bunch of Christians on the beaches of Libya. They held knives to their throats and said, give up your faith or we will saw your heads off. Not one man gave up his faith. They all had their heads sawed off in a line. Imagine being at the end of that line and seeing a hundred or so men have their heads sawed off and it comes to you. Will you give up your faith? No. And they lost their head as well. 
Those men just got buried, I think, in the last month. There was a news story about it. Two years later, they finally got a proper burial. So if you think this is out of the realm of possibility, it's already happening in a lot of countries in the world right now. Look up the Christian persecution in Egypt, in places like Sudan, in places like Saudi Arabia, places like that where Christians are heavily persecuted, heavily persecuted. And so then it says the offspring that Satan wants to destroy. It actually gives us the definition. If you have your Bible with you, it says offspring and then there's a dash, which indicates it's going to define that word. Now, when it talks about the offspring of God, this is how it defines the offspring of God. It says people who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus Christ. Now, we say a lot, right? We even sing songs about it. I am a child of God. I'm a Christian. Now, the Bible defines a child of God as someone who obeys the commands of God and holds firmly to the teachings and the testimony about God. So we throw around the word Christian a lot, and I'm not really sure that we all 100% know what that means. So we have to ask, are we Christian by biblical definition? You know, 68% of the United States claims to be Christian. I don't think our culture exemplifies a 68 percentile Christian culture. So here's the thing in chapter 12. Not only are we shown this very graphic kind of epic battle of good and evil, God and Satan. What's neat about chapter 12 is we learn that we are a part of the story. We understand that we are persecuted by the antagonist, the bad guy. But look what we also learn. We learn that we're winners. We are overcomers of the forces of hell. Not only that, we are the offspring of God. But let's get real practical today. Okay, we're gonna get real practical. If we say we're overcomers, if we say we're offspring of God, we have to know by definition what that means. By definition, overcomers and offspring are those who have faith in who Jesus is. Jesus has to be one of three things. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He either has to be a lunatic because he walked around telling everyone he was God. He either has to be a liar because he walked around telling everyone he was God. Or he has to be Lord, which means that what he said was the truth. There's a thing called docetism. Docetism is the idea that Jesus was just a really good dude. He loved people. He hung out with the poor and the downtrodden you know, love to sip herbal tea and turn a blind eye to everyone's bad stuff. It's not a biblical Jesus. And so we have to know who Jesus truly is. That yes, God is love. God is also just. God is also righteous. God also has statutes and God also has a standard by which he wants us to live. So a true follower has to know who the biblical Jesus is. Who is he? We also have to believe in what he has done. We often talk about the cross, guys. We talk about the blood of Jesus Christ. But I don't think a lot of us truly understand that the blood of Jesus Christ delivers us. That it truly changes who we are. That it saves us. I don't think there's a lot of you, I think there's a lot of you in this room who again, we, we believe in forgiveness, but we don't always accept forgiveness. Because deep down in our core, we don't think that the blood of Jesus Christ truly eradicated our sins and mistakes. There are some of you who are riddled with guilt, riddled with shame, 
riddled with regret. And I'm not trying to be mean to you, but it's because you truly haven't bought into the idea that the blood of Jesus Christ makes you a new creation. I don't know how to convince you of that, but the real offspring, the real overcomers, believe that Jesus Christ's blood covers all sin if we repent, that it heals us, it restores us, it changes us. True overcomers and true offspring We apply the teachings of Christ. James said, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. (laughs) Don't just come in here week after week and hear me read the Bible and go, oh, that sounds pretty good. Do these things. Listen, if all of you married men in this room would love your wives like Jesus loves the church, Ephesians chapter five, I would never have to see you in my office for marital counseling. If all the women in this room who are married would respect your husbands, like Ephesians chapter five says, I would never have to see you ladies in my office for marital counseling. Just do what the Bible tells you to do. I know it's not always easy. I know you're gonna mess up. Repent, get back, and apply these words to your life. Go through the book of Titus and Timothy. Go through the book of James. Go through the book of Proverbs. Very practical ways that the Bible tells us to live our lives. If we did those things, Man, if we followed the book of Proverbs, talk on money, right? That the debtor is slave to the lender. If we did what Malachi said with our money and tithed, and if we gave, if we trusted God with our income, the Bible says he'll open up the floodgates of heaven. And we wonder why we don't see more things happen in our lives. It's because we don't apply the Bible. We don't apply what we're hearing, what we're reading, what we're studying, True overcomers and offspring also obey the commands of God. When the Bible says don't steal, it just means don't steal. That means on your taxes. That means with the stuff at your work that you bring home and you shouldn't. When it says don't steal, it means don't steal. When it says don't commit adultery, it means don't commit adultery. When it says don't murder, I know most of you guys are like, whew, done that one. And then Jesus said, if you've ever hated someone, you've murdered them in your heart means we're not supposed to hate. We're to obey the commands of Christ. It says in John chapter 15 that if you love me, Jesus said this, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. If you love me, you'll do what I tell you to do. True overcomers and true offspring also endure. I have people come to me all the time who are just like, man, it's so bad in the United States. It's all so awful. How can there be a God? Listen, if Donald Trump in the office is the worst thing that happens to the United States, you have not traveled enough to see what it looks like in other parts of the world that are actually bad. We live in a pretty good country, guys. Whether you voted for the man or or didn't vote for him, oh, Trump's in office, everything's going to explode. Guys, we will keep on going, right? It's going to be okay. And when people freak out and lose their minds and talk about how awful of a nation we live in, you've never been to a nation when three-year-old kids don't have any parents and they walk around on the streets eating garbage off the ground. You've never seen that. So I don't want to hear. And so when people give up their faith because someone, you know, like unfriended, unfriended them on Facebook, I'm persecuted, Corey. Someone unfriended me. You didn't even know the person, right? That's not persecution. So what scares me about Christians in the United States is, man, we get offended and hurt about everything, and we walk up and give up on everything at any slight 
kind of pressure against us. Guys, if we can't live as Christians in the freest and most prosperous nation that's ever existed, when the crap hits the fan, a lot of you are going to be screwed. I know you guys don't like it when I say stuff like that. You know that's why a lot of churches don't like to teach the book of Revelation because there's actually hard stuff in there. So a lot of Christians have this pre-tribulation idea. Well, Corey, we're just raptured out before anything bad happens to us because nothing bad ever happens to Christians. It's good wishful thinking, isn't it? But I'm gonna tell you guys, it's gonna get rough before it gets better. It's gonna get hard. And I hope in our hearts we have a spirit that says, come hell or high water, if they take my wife, if they take my kids, God forbid, if they take my home, if I lose my job, if I starve to death, God, I am with you. I will endure till the very end. Which leads me to the last statement. The true overcomers, the true offspring of God are those who are willing to say, I would give it all. And I know we say that, guys. I know we say that. One time there was this, 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 this kind of rich kid that walked up to Jesus and he walked up to Jesus and, hey, Jesus, hey, you're kind of the cool thing right now. Hey, I go to the synagogue every single week. I pay my tithes, right, because I got money. I follow all the Ten Commandments, which is a lie, right? Follow all the Ten Commandments, do everything. You know, hey, I want to follow you. Can I go? And Jesus said, man, that's, that's really, really good. Here's the only thing you're missing, though. You really love all your stuff, Get rid of all your stuff and then walk with me. Listen, imagine, imagine God looking at you in the eyes, God, and saying, hey, all you got to do is get rid of all this material crap and you can hang out with me. Wouldn't you say yes to that? We look at the rich young ruler in the gospel and we're like, man, what an idiot. And almost on a daily basis, we look at the comforts of our life and we say, man, I really love Jesus. Not sure I could give these things up though, right? Not sure I'd move. Not sure I'd walk out of this relationship. Not sure I would sacrifice these comforts and these things. But we have to be willing to be the last. We have to be willing to lose our lives. And if we're not willing to lose our lives for Jesus, we will never find it. Jesus said it this way, if you deny me on earth, I'll deny you in heaven. If you won't give up everything on earth, Jesus says, then I won't, I won't give you eternity. Listen, I know this is a simple list. I know we look at these things and we're like, well, of course I know who Jesus is, right? Of course I believe in the cross. I got a necklace on right now with a cross on it, right? <laughs> of course I apply the teachings of Christ, right? I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not lying on my taxes, right? We look at these things and we kind of write them off as like, pfft. Another one of those lessons, right? Didn't learn anything new. But I think if we're honest and if we look at this, and if we get alone with God and we really ask ourselves these questions, if we say, God, really open up the chambers of the, the darkest parts of my heart, would I give it all up for you? Guys, I'll be honest with you. I heard a story a couple of years ago. I got a couple of minutes. There was a story of somewhere in northern, uh, northern Africa. There was a lot of radical Islamists moving in. It was Nigeria or something like that. And there was a man who had his kids. And these radical, uh, uh, radical Islam moved in. And they, they came to this man who was a Christian. 
And they said, if you don't denounce your faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to throw your son in a fire. The man looked at these people and he said, I will not renounce my faith in Jesus Christ. And they threw his son in a fire. The kid lived, scarred all down one whole half of his body. They did all these stories on it and they followed him. And of course, people are like, oh my God, what an idiot. And he's a horrible father and all these things. But you look at situations like that and you start to think a little bit. What if someone tried to take my kids? What if someone put a gun to my wife's head? What would you do? What would you do? Man, if we can't give up our 3,000 foot homes and downsize, if we can't give up 10% of our income for the cause of the ministry, if we can't give up 20 or 30 minutes a day and talk to God and pray, what will we do when real pressure really comes? You ever thought about that? Maybe some of us need to take this list and we need to go home and we need to look at it. And maybe you really need to meditate on it. And maybe you really need to think about it. God, God, if it all came down, is my relationship with you really the most important thing? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, I want to tell you something as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Never underestimate the transformative power of the Holy Spirit of God. All of us in this room are naturally selfish. We naturally look out for ourselves first. But what God does when we give our lives to Christ, when we follow him, when we trust him, when he fills us with his spirit, his spirit does something supernatural in us. It's not natural, supernatural. And it makes us be benevolent people. It makes us be giving people, loving people, selfless people. We give ourselves to our wives. We give ourselves to our husbands. We give ourselves to our children. We give ourselves to our community. We give ourselves for the greater good of mankind. We give ourselves for the gospel. But that's not a natural thing to do. God has to transform our hearts. If you're in here and, and maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you're new to the faith, but you got some questions, up here to my right, your left, is Greg. Greg's got glasses on. He's, he's got a button-up shirt on. If you have any questions for Greg, come up here and ask Greg. If you're in here and you need prayer for anything, like the Bible says, we're going to two or more gathered in my name. The Holy Spirit is there. Come up and let someone pray with you. There's men and women on both sides. Here's the last thing. Last thing. There's communion all the way around you. For maybe some of you who need God to really explore your heart. For maybe some of you who have forgotten that God loves you so much that regardless of how bad you've been, he still wants you. The body and blood of Jesus represented in the, in the bread and the juice is all around you and everyone is welcome to take communion. All you have to do is ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Father, Lord, I love you. God, I love this church. I love these people so much. I pray that you bless our hearts, God. Speak to our hearts this season. Show us that you love us, God. Show us, God, that 
you will transform us and make us into what you want us to be. Lord, let us be selfless and giving and Lord, let us stand firm on our faith. We love you. We thank you. We lift you up, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself.